from Hama, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Anahato Connor will join us to discuss medical myths and facts. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, common wisdom is often used to justify many types of behaviors. But is such wisdom actually justified? What are the truths and myths behind several popularly held conceptions? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Anahad O'Connor. Mr. O'Connor is a reporter for the New York Times, covering breaking national news, and contributing to the weekly column, Really? The paper's Science Times section. Author of the previous best-selling book, Never Shower in a Thunderstorm, his new release, Always Follow the Elephants, More Surprising Facts and Misleading Myths About Our Health, and the world we live in continues the exploration of everyday beliefs for a general audience. Uh, Mr. O'Connor, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yes, uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be on. All right. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program. You wrote a uh, previous book called Never Shower in a Thunderstorm, I'm, which actually covered a lot of these popular myths. Why did you decide to write the second book? Well, you know, after I wrote the first one, I thought that would pretty much be the end of it, that I had tackled so many myths and medical claims and old wives' tales. But then as once the book was out, I started getting more and more questions from people, and more and more questions started coming to my attention. So after a pretty short period, I had amassed another 100, um, actually more than 100 questions that had pretty intriguing answers, oftentimes very unexpected and surprising answers. And so it kind of snowballed into this uh, second book. Did you have a hard time actually whittling down the questions that you addressed for the book? Yeah, I mean, there there were definitely some questions where it's true that scientists often tackle some quirky scientific questions and conundrums. There are a few that are a little too <laughs> quirky even for um, the really curious scientists. But I was able to amass about 100, 110 new questions and, an- and answers, and the column actually continues to this day every every Tuesday in Science Times. So it's still going on. Oh, well, that's excellent, uh, especially at a time, I think, when most newspapers are uh, cutting their science sections. Yeah, I mean, science is so extremely important. I mean, just, you know, we saw that there was this extremely significant development with Artie, the fossil that was discovered that pretty much changed our thinking of evolution. And we're getting more and more findings like this every week. So science is extremely important when it comes to uh, newspaper coverage. Do you think audiences out there are actually very interested in science information, or do you think uh, more interested in how it relates to their everyday life? Uh, I think there is a sizable segment of the population that is simply interested in science because what it teaches us about the world that we live in, such as with the finding on on the fossil that was discovered in in Africa. But 
that's a pretty big segment of the population. But I think everyone, entire population, is particularly interested in scientific and health studies that particularly pertain to them. And that's one thing I like about the column and the book is that I'm exploring questions that are sometimes quirky, sometimes intriguing, but the bottom line is they all have relevance to our lives. Mm. Do you find that in covering science for a newspaper to focus on that aspect of science? Back when I was doing pure scientific coverage, um, you know, writing about astronomy and zoology, it was things that were fascinating. But then I moved over to the health section and I started this column. And my goal now is to look for things that people will find interesting and fascinating, but can also take away something from it and apply it to their everyday lives. That's something I love about health coverage. Hmm. Where did most of the questions in the book come from? Were they from uh, readers? I mean, most of the questions are, or mo most of the columns are sparked by readers who just send in questions and say, you know, I always heard this, this growing up, or, you know, my friend insists that this is true, but I, I never believed it. Um, other times, there are things that I might hear on TV when I'm watching a show, and there's something that's sort of stated as conventional wisdom or, or fact. And I say, you know what, it's, it's worth uh, looking into this. For example, the column this week is on whether washing your hands with warm water is more effective than washing your hands with cold water. And this is something that's always been accepted as fact. You know, a lot of medical researchers and health authorities will tell you, wash your hands with warm, soapy water, especially at a time like this when swine flu is spreading and it's flu season in general. But decided, this is a pretty interesting question, let me actually look and see if there's some basis to this. And I found some scientific studies that actually took people, they contaminated their hands with bacteria, and then they had people wash their hands with water varying temperatures, everything from cold water to water that was about 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And they found that there was no difference in the rate of uh, bacterial removal. So that's an example of something that everyone grows up hearing and is accepted as scientific fact because it seems to make sense, seems logical, but in reality, science shows that there's really no basis to it. So that's one thing about the book that, that I like, doing things like that. Hmm. You've seen a lot of these different types of misconceptions. Do you think there's a common thread for how some of these misconceptions get started? You know, to go back to the last example, I think it's just something that sounds like it makes sense. With the washing your hands thing, medical experts just sort of assume that there are natural oils in the skin that harbor bacteria, and warm water helps dissolve these oils. So naturally, warm water will be better at removing these bacteria. And it just makes sense. There wasn't any scientific evidence showing this when it was decreed by health authorities, but it just got passed down through generations and repeated every flu season until it's just accepted as fact. And then it takes a science reporter to go out there and look for the evidence and see if this is true or not. So I think a lot of times it's just something that seems like it makes sense, but it really doesn't. <laughs> so... You go out there and you find that these myths are actually sometimes patently untrue, but yet somehow they still persist. Is there any way of changing people's misconceptions? Uh, I think it is, it is. It's difficult to change people's beliefs, especially when, when they've held them for so long. You know, but my job as a science and health reporter is to put the facts out there, to discuss the evidence. And then at the end of the day, 
people can either accept that and say, wow, you know, my thinking has changed and I'll change what I'm doing. Or they can say, well, that's what the scientists say, but that's not my bottom line. And that's happened before. For instance, when I answer the question of whether arthritis symptoms wax and wane with changes in weather, and I've found that studies indicate that there's not a whole lot of scientific basis to this. People wrote in and said, Dan, this is what the studies say, but swear this is true, and I refuse to accept it. And so that happens sometimes, but I see my job as basically to give people the evidence and the facts and, and the information and then um, decide what to do with it. Well, uh, the book is really filled with uh, interesting facts and tidbits about some commonly held questions. I'm, I'm curious about the titular question of the book about always following the elephants. There's a little story behind that. Yeah, well, this is one that actually, you know, as I was saying earlier, when I was, after the first book came out, and I was discussing it and on various radio shows, and, and people would call in with all these questions, and this is one that kept on coming up. People would say, you know, during the tsunami that struck Asia, the, the big tsunami, there were all these reports of animals escaping unharmed, and these reports that there were no dead uh, animal carcasses around. They seemed to have sensed the disaster and escaped. Is this true? Do animals have some sort of sixth uh, sense? You know, people say they're dogs. Well, act funny. There's something going on, or there's a full moon. What's, what's going on? So I decided to look into this, and it turns out that, I mean, first of all, there were good studies showing that there were a lot of animal carcasses that were discovered in, in zoos and some parts of Asia, so not every animal survived. But they also found that there are animals that are able to sense very subtle seismic shocks that humans are not able to sense. And in particular, during the tsunami, it was caused by an underground earthquake. And before the tsunami struck, before we saw the giant waves and the tsunami crash ashore, this underground or underwater earthquake actually sent out these very subtle seismic shocks. And elephants, in particular, were able to detect this because elephants have actually been shown to have very sensitive sensors in their feet, and they will often communicate over very long distances by stomping the ground and picking up these signals from one another. So there were reports in Asia of tourists riding elephants, and the elephants suddenly started going uphill and, and acting funny and scurrying away from water, from the ocean, just before the tsunami struck. And so this sort of explains it. So that's where the title comes from, uh, Always Follow the Elephants, because sometimes they are able to sense <laughs> certain disasters coming. So if you're ever in New York or Chicago and you see elephants heading a certain way, you might want to follow them. <laughs> that would be a sight, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so. um, well, the book is really filled with a lot of fascinating questions, and certainly not time to go through all of them. But I'm, I'm curious, do you have any favorite ones out of the book that you particularly enjoyed researching? Yeah, there's actually one that I had always wondered about, and that is the question of whether uh, short men have less luck with women. And, you know, we hear about celebrities on the shorter side, like Prince and Tom Cruise and Frank Sinatra, who did, you know, pretty well with the ladies. But men in, in general say that shorter men seem to have less luck. And there's actually been studies showing that there is some truth to this because they found that women, when they are in their um, follicular phase of the menstrual cycle, which is basically when they're most fertile, that they actually find taller men to be more attractive. They, they looked at women and studied the traits that they look for when they're in heat, basically. 
And it turns out that being tall does have an advantage. And they've also found in other studies that when they look at men and they look at their relationships with women and, you know, examine their height, they found that taller men are actually more likely to have a long-term partner, more likely to have several different long-term partners, and less likely to be childless than their uh, shorter counterparts. So this was something that was particularly interesting to me, being someone who's five foot nine. <laughs> But at the same time, other studies have shown that it's not, you know, all bad for shorter men. We are less likely to perish in car crashes, break bones in a fall, or um, suffer serious injuries. So there's kind of an upside and a downside to that. So that's, that's one thing that, always, uh, that I particularly wondered about. Well, it is fascinating. Well, it's sort of staying on the subject of mating and sex. One that fascinated me was, uh, can sex be substituted for a workout? Uh, I think this is something, you know, this is one of these universal questions that, that everyone kind of wonders about or would like to know the answer to. And the reality is that actually men, on average, in about 30 minutes of sexual intercourse, burn roughly 50 calories, whereas women burn about 40 calories. And it's not that bad, but when you compare that to some other forms of cardiovascular activity, for example, jogging on a treadmill, that burns about 700 calories for men and about 600 calories for women. So there's a big difference there. Playing catch burns 200 calories for men, 180 calories for women. So that's something else where there's another difference. But the upside is that with intercourse, you're actually targeting uh, many different muscles of and areas of the body. So you're getting a good ab workout, a quad workout, obviously cardiovascular workout. And you're incorporating lots of muscles. And it's also been shown that, you know, orgasm can release or reduce stress, strengthens the immune system, and even boosts uh, longevity. So there's definitely a, you may not be able to substitute sex for workout per se, but there are definitely certain upsides to it. So. <laughs> well, I don't think you'll find too many people quitting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so not that anyone needed uh, any more encouragement or motivation, but there's the science for it, so... <laughs> Uh, well, sort of related to that, uh, can actually stretching before a workout help prevent injuries? Uh, you know, this is something that I was always told in gym class growing up, but I think most people who went to school were told this as well by their gym teachers. You know, you have to stretch to ward off injuries, but actually studies have shown the reverse. They've shown that stretching can actually predispose you to certain injuries because if you stretch too much or too intensely, then you can suffer little, very minor cytoskeletal damage. And that can, you see, once you start working out or exercising, that can do further damage. And they've also shown that with stretching, if you stretch before exercise, you're more likely to push through pain once you actually start exercising. For some reason, it predisposes people to that. So there's not a lot of upside to doing an intense stretch before a workout, but they have shown that it is good to get a nice little warm-up. So maybe jogging in place or um, sort of anything that'll just get the blood flowing without necessarily stretching your muscles or your tissues unnaturally. Good to know. Yeah, yeah. Um, one that uh, a lot of people are usually uh, interested in after a big night of drinking is, uh, are there actually any proven hangover cures? Uh, you know, this is something that I wish I could say there are, but so far the studies have found that there, there's nothing to it. A lot of people, you know, for example, swear by coffee, but in reality it's just going to cause you to have a hangover and be more awake. And there's a lot of other so-called hangover cures that don't really work. Um, the best thing they've shown is that better to obviously drink a full stomach 
It's better to drink water in between drinks. And also, um, it's better to drink clear liquids or clear uh, liquors because the darker liquors, uh, like rum, for example, have more or greater amounts of a compound called congeners, which they've shown can contribute to hangovers. So if you are planning on going out for a, a night of drinking and you have to be up in the morning, you're probably better off going with vodka sodas than, you know, rum and sodas. Good advice. This time of the year as we're going into winter, and I'm sure a lot of people are wondering if actually alcohol can warm you up. Uh, this is something that a lot of people swear by, and it's easy to see why, because when you drink alcohol, it actually causes your body to radiate heat away from the core. So when you first start drinking, you know, with that initial buzz, you get a, a warm sensation. But that warm sensation is actually your body sort of diffusing heat when you want your body to actually, you want more heat at your core. So if you're outside and you're drinking, you're going to get that warm initial feeling. But after a little while, um, your body temperature is going to drop, something that's definitely not advisable, using alcohol as sort of your cold weather blanket. <laughs> Do you think that people's interest in their health is more prevalent nowadays? Oh, I think people are, are definitely becoming more and more interested in their health because there's more and more funding for health studies, and so we're, we're learning surprising things about health. Health authorities are, are being very proactive in telling people what's, which foods are better for them and which foods aren't and, and warning them to be very cautious of looking at nutritional labels, for example. So I think people are definitely becoming aware, especially with, you know, the rising rates of obesity and diabetes. And a lot of these diseases, unfortunately, there's obviously a genetic role in some of them, but many of them are fueled by what we eat and by how much we do or, or do not exercise. So I think people are, are definitely becoming more and more interested and concerned about their health. There's much more awareness. Hmm. Do you think people have the resources to actually find the information they need about their health, or do you think there's too much misinformation out there for them to sift through? Uh, I think there's some misinformation out there, but I think people have nowadays with the Internet, you know, there's so many different sources and, and places to get medical and, and health information. And oftentimes, for example, people will get emails telling them things that sound like they might save their lives, but may actually just be false. And it's pretty easy nowadays to go online and find a medical database where you can find answers to these questions or to go to nytimes.com and to go to our health page and, and find answers. So there's a lot of good sources out there for medical inf information that can counter the untrusted or, or less trustworthy sources. So I think if people want information, there's definitely ways to get it. And there's certainly your very fascinating book. Uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, any plans for a follow-up? The column is still going on every Tuesday. It's in Science Times, and I'm still getting fascinating questions from readers. So I think in, in about a year's time, we'll see how many columns or questions have arisen since Always Follow the Elephants. And you never know, there might just be a third one. All right. Well, as long as the questions keep coming, I'll keep looking for answers. <laughs> well, there's certainly a lot of questions out there. We are really slightly out of time. Do you just have any final words regarding the book, Always Follow the Elephants? It's out there in stores, and there's a wealth of information there. Um, it's not just dry scientific fact. There's also a lot of stories 
or I look into the ways in which these claims came about. So there's a lot of interesting history behind some of these old wives' tales and medical claims, and I think it's uh, it's a fun read. So I would encourage people to go out there and get it and, and check out Science Times every Tuesday. All right. Well, the new book is called Always Follow the Elephants, More Surprising Facts and Misleading Myths About Our Health and the World We Live in. Uh, Mr. O'Connor, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been great. And you were just listening to Mr. Anahad O'Connor discussing medical myths and facts. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, fact or fiction? So for the following five individuals, the uh, Grokatron 5000 would like to know if in a thousand years, if historians are looking back on them, would they think they actually existed or were just fictitious characters? (laughs) Okay. All right. And maybe a little reason why. All right. uh, You ready to play the game? Absolutely, I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Person number one in a thousand years, fact or fiction, talk show host Jerry Springer. <laughs> uh, I would say fiction because some of his shows have just been too surreal. They're too hard to believe. <laughs> so I think they will think he's a comic book character. <laughs> All right, number two is uh, Microsoft former chairman Bill Gates. I think they will uh, definitely think he was fact. They will perhaps think that he was actually a, a robot because he's such a genius, superhuman genius. But I think they will uh, consider him fact. Okay. Uh, number three, the quarterback, Brett Favre. Uh, let's see. I will think they will consider him fact. They'll just have a very hard time pinning down which team he played for. <laughs> uh, all right. Number four is the pop star, Michael Jackson. Ooh, Michael Jackson. I will say fact. Because there, I think his music is so great that it will actually people will still be listening to it a thousand years from now. All right, good thing for his music. And finally, number five, it's the president of the United States, Barack Obama. Mm, that's a tough one. Uh, I think that they will think he is fact. I think there will probably be some tall tales 
associated with him, just like there were, um, you know, tall tales associated with some of our earliest presidents and founding fathers. But I think they'll consider him fact. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. O'Connor, I want to thank you for sticking around uh, playing our game. And of course, again, talking about your book, which is called Always Follow the Elephants, More Surprising Facts and Misleading Myths About Our Health and the World We Live In. Thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was our pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.